Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. And I just want to give you a quick reminder that there are still a few slots remaining for our Writing for Impact and Influence professional development course. The idea behind it is to help scientists further the reach of their message by improving their writing skills, with a particular emphasis on writing for broad audiences. So if that interests you, you'll find a link in the show notes. And moving on to the show. For this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Steve McCormick, who's a senior scientist and research physiologist with the U.S. Geological Survey. He and his colleague Michael Romero of Tufts University recently wrote in Bioscience about the topic of conservation endocrinology, which is focused on how the endocrine system, which is responsible for releasing hormones into the circulatory system, can play a big role in biological conservation. And he shared with us a lot of great examples. So with no further ado, let's get straight to the interview. Dr. McCormick, thank you very much for joining me today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Okay, just to get us started, I was hoping you could give us a little bit of an introduction to the field. You know, I think we're all familiar with the term conservation, and we are all familiar with the term endocrinology, but we see them together less frequently. Um, so what's it all about? Yeah, sure. It, I think the basic idea is that the endocrine system integrates both environmental information and internal developmental information to bring about a physiological response to relevant environmental changes. And we've been working on that as scientists for many years now. Um, and more recently, the idea that we could apply this to conservation issues has become more and more of interest. The idea there is that populations, species are, are made up of individuals, individuals that have to respond, respond to environmental changes. And because the endocrine system is integrating that, inter that environmental information, uh, in a responsive fashion, by looking at how individuals respond, you can actually get an early warning signal of how populations might be responding to environmental changes. And I was hoping you could give us just sort of maybe an example of what that might look like in a, you know, in a specific instance, um, something so that we can tie an endocrine response to, you know, say, an environmental stressor or something like that. Yeah, sure. There's, there's, a few ways um, that are good examples, I think. I th perhaps the, the one endocrine axis that's been used mostly for this kind of issue is the, the stress axis, the what we call the hypothalamic, pituitary, interrenal, or adrenal axis. So that's basically the stress hormone cortisol, which goes up when an animal experiences either a short-term stress or long-term stressors. And so circulating levels of cortisol will go up and they act as signals to tell the animal to mobilize energy, to perhaps delay reproduction or even stop reproduction for the season. And so by measuring cortisol, we can get an indication of how the animal is perceiving its environment, whether it's perceiving its environment as stressful or not. And we've known about cortisol for a long time. We've known that it's an important stress hormone in all vertebrates. The advance that we've made in the last few years is that we've been able to start measuring cortisol and other hormones in tissue other than blood. So you can imagine that an animal that might be of interest could be an elephant that's quite large or a fish that's difficult to capture. And we've never really been able to get the plasma levels for these either large species or difficult to find species. 
But now we've realized that we can measure cortisol and again, a number of other kinds of hormones in tissue other than just blood. We can measure it in feathers. We can measure it in scales. We can measure it in urine or feces. So actually without even touching the individual, we can get a picture of whether or not it's under stress, whether it's perceiving its environment as stressful. Okay, so that's an interesting change. So previously, you know, so hormones are released into the blood by the endocrine system. Um, and in this case, talking about cortisol, it would be reflective of a stressor. Right. And But previously, you'd have no way of, of finding out, you know, what, say, an elephant's cortisol level was unless you darted the elephant, followed it around until it lost consciousness, took a blood sample, et cetera. But now the technology is there to do that remotely. Right. And even if we could get a blood sample, sometimes the, the stress of capture itself would give us an artificial picture. So in fact, by being able to measure these without intervening in the animal gives us an even more powerful tool. That's a good point. You, you really need to monitor this passively or else you know, you've, you've got a situation in which you're, uh, you're altering the cortisol level by measuring it. Exactly. So what are those techniques like, say, for an elephant? Well, we can do things like in some cases, collect urine uh, from the animals uh, if they're in a trained situation, for instance, or just follow individuals with radio tracking or in a zoo or in the wild um, where we've come across feces that we could relate to any individual. We can actually just take a sample, freeze it, and then extract it and measure the cortisol or the metabolites of cortisol that are present in the feces. And then the idea would be to, you know, take these individual samples and extrapolate from them a view of the population response to a given stressor or other, something else. That's right. And so in some cases, we need to have lots of samples uh, over different populations change and understand changes over time. It's not like we can just take a simple sample and make a definitive assessment. We need to have lots of samples, understand what the baselines are, and then have a definitive question that we're asking. For instance, does ecotourism have an impact on cortisol levels in elephants? So we could compare populations where some are ex experiencing disturbance due to ecotourism and others are not, and actually do some comparisons. And we need plenty of individuals to do that too. And is that an example that's actually been carried out? Yes, it has. Yep. And what were the findings? Well, there have been a few studies that have looked at ecotourism impacts on species like elephants and penguins. And, and I was actually on a student's committee, and she just finished her studies looking at elephants and could find that they were only moderately impacted. So she could detect increased levels of corticosteroids in the feces, but they weren't at particularly high levels. So the, the animals had a slight perception of stress but not to the level that would bring about negative impacts. Okay, so this sounds like it would be incredibly useful because it would, you know, it would give managers potentially uh, a means of, of finding out if the things that they were doing were beneficial or harmful. Absolutely. I think it's a great tool for managers. Again, we need a lot of baseline information. We have to be conservative initially in how we interpret things. And there's still a lot more to be done to make sure that these kind of physiological connections at the individual level are going to be transmitted through to population level impacts. Uh, but certainly when you're interested in individual animals, and especially in large mammals in that kind of situation like elephants, 
um, it, it can really be a very powerful tool and give us day-to-day -day information. And how is that extrapolation made? Oh, that's the tough part, isn't it? Right. I think we... I think we need to, again, have lots of different populations, lots of experience. This, this field is growing rapidly. Uh, there's a lot of work uh, with different mammal species. And I think as we develop more and more assessments and are able to connect these to population level decreases, and I think that's where we've got the most need for more information. So far, we've been able to do a lot of studies or a fair number of studies in which we can look at corticosteroids that are present in feces or scales or, or feathers, but making that connection from individual changes to population level changes is still where we need to make, still need to make some contributions, still have a lot of work to do. Is that mostly a, like a statistical problem? No, I, I think partly statistics, but partly to do the kind of assessments that we're talking about, we need to look at how populations are changing over time. And that can take many, many years. And so you have to do both the corticosteroid studies or other hormone studies, as well as the population level studies, so that you can connect individuals to populations. And that takes time. I would imagine, especially so if you were looking at, um, you know, a stressor like changing temperatures or something, which, you know, might not, which probably is not going to be presented consistently over, a, you know, a period of a couple of years. That, that's right. Very true. Good point. And it's very difficult with long-lived species to make some of these assessments. Why is that? Well, just if you're looking for a population response, if you're, if you're interested in more than just the individual, then... If you're interested more in the population itself, whether a species is going extinct in a certain area or populations are declining, you really need to assess the, the whole population and look at changes over time. And so in some ways, the endocrine work is relatively easy. It's, it's something that we can do right away, um, but looking at the population changes over time is more difficult, more expensive, um, and especially for highly migratory species can be very difficult to do. So in that instance, you would need to be studying the species at, you know, multiple locations, potentially. Mul multiple locations, that's right, and be, uh, be able to track uh, mortality, survival over time. And that, uh, that, I imagine, would be very difficult unless you had a lot of people working on a given project. Absolutely, yep. Okay, and you mentioned fish, and I'm wondering, what are the collection techniques like for fish hormones? You know, I'm guessing that some of the things you would do for, you know, collecting elephant feces, say, would not work as well for aquatic species. Right, exactly. So we haven't done a lot with fish um, feces work. That's a little hard to do. Yeah, imagine um, But we have, so in laboratory studies, we can actually measure cortisol levels or sex steroid levels in the water itself. So in situations in the laboratory or aquaculture situations, we can get a picture of whether animals are becoming reproductive or whether they're under stress simply by measuring the levels of sex steroids or cortisol in the water itself. Oh, that's interesting. And, th and that's measuring the steroids that are the fish are excreting. That, that's right. That actually come out in, in the urine. Okay. And is that possible in um, riverine systems or pond systems or is that, is that laboratory only? We haven't, we haven't done that. I suspect it's a little unlikely given that um, the fish to water ratio <laughs> is uh, so low in those kind of situations. But what we can do, we have some other tools. First of all, in some situations, we can capture fish quickly enough and get a blood sample where circulating cortisol 
is very helpful. And if we're not interested in stress, but rather whether fish are in a reproductive state, um, say looking at testosterone or estradiol, we don't even have to worry about how quickly we get the animals. We can, we can get a blood sample. So as long as we can get our hands on the fish, we can learn a lot about whether they're, for instance, going into a reproductive state. Right. So it sounds like there are a lot of different applications that are going to vary pretty dramatically by species and situation. That's right. And another advance for fish that we've had recently is that we can actually measure the level of cortisol and we think reproductive hormones as well in the scales. So we can just grab a few scales, extract out the steroids and get a sort of integrated picture of cortisol. And that in some ways may be better than the the sort of snapshot picture that we get from circulating hormones, which can vary very rapidly uh, within a few minutes of a stressor. Whereas what we think is happening with, say, samples in hair or cortisol or in feathers is that they integrate the levels of steroids, both the sex steroids and the, the uh, stress steroids. Uh, they integrate those over a period of days to weeks. And that can actually be more valuable than a single point sample that you get from a blood sample. Now, just to get, you know, bring this into the concrete, um, you know, what's, for instance, one reason why you would be looking at um, you know, fish's reproductive hormones? What, what, what does that tell you about the broader environment and what's happening to the fish? Well, for some species, we don't really even know when they reproduce. So understanding the seasonal cycle of reproduction can be important. In our work, for instance, where we're very interested in highly migratory species, uh, what we term the anadromous species that are migrating back from the ocean into freshwater to spawn, dams can have a huge impact on their reproduction and survival. And so by being able to understand changes both in the stress hormones and reproductive hormones as they migrate upstream, as they might encounter dams and have to go up fish passage structures, we can understand a great deal of their impact. Okay, so this is shedding much more light in a more granular way on the way that species are responding to, you know, the various interventions that people have put in the in the in their waterways. I think so. A lot of what we try to address is what kind of actions we have as people and how that may be affecting animals. And that's the thing we have the most control over, of course, is our own actions. And if we can really understand what those might be, in those situations where they're quite obvious, like the impacts of dams on fish, I think we could make a, a large contribution to increasing populations that we've impacted. And what were the effects of dams like um, from the endocrine perspective? You know, I think we've all, we all we all know the uh, the sort of the, the really basic physiological problem of you know the fish are not able to migrate in some places. Um, but but what could you tell at that more specific level? Right. In some cases, like you say, dams are going to just, there's no fish passage there. Then dams are going to completely block the fish movements upstream and, and thus limit their spawning capabilities. We've, we've found that there are really species-specific differences in the impact of fish ladders, say, on upstream migration. Uh, salmon are very good at moving through fish ladders. They're relatively unstressed by that. But depending on the design of the fish ladder, other species like American shad can be heavily impacted by the dam. Stress levels go up, reproductive hormones go down, and we think this ultimately limits their ability to move upstream and spawn successfully. That's fascinating. And also looking at this, you know, from the um, a similar aquatic level, um, you mentioned in the article that similar techniques were being used to, um, you know, measure 
uh, hormone mimickers and and you know other similar chemicals that may be the result of pollution. Uh, is that also tied in here? Yeah, I think there's been a lot of work done on what we term endocrine disruptors, which are contaminants that can mimic hormones or interfere with normal endocrine function. And we've been looking increasingly at how these might impact not just fish, but even human health. And it's a really rapidly moving field, one in which we really need to understand more about whether these compounds are having impacts in the wild. And then, you know, just speaking about potential human impacts, you know, probably the biggest one that we always end up talking about on this show uh, is climate change. And is the endocrine system being used to measure the effects of climate change on any species so far? Well, it really depends on the species. When you think about it, uh, some animals uh, are quite impressively affected by temperature. In my own work, we we work on fish. They are what we term cold-blooded. So whatever the temperature of the environment is, is is the temperature that those animals are going to experience. So temperature drives virtually every aspect of the animal's physiology. So it drives their growth rates. It drives their capacity to swim. It's, it's overwhelmingly important. And so climate change is going to have a strong impact on, on many aspects, including when animals reproduce. And sometimes temperature is acting as a signal. And in that case, the animal can actually follow temperature changes. Um, and in other cases, photoperiod is acting as a cue for seasonal reproduction, say. So if, for instance, um, there's an there's a increasing appreciation for the fact that if photoperiod is primarily cueing seasonal events like, say, fish reproduction, but the seasons themselves are moving because of climate change, fish or birds or others that are using these photoperiod cues may not be timed right for, for the best survival of the young, best spawning times. So there's a really potential asynchrony that's driven by climate change. Oh, that's interesting. So it could be a case in which you know the fish need to be in a certain area in order to take advantage of certain, say, water temperatures. Um, they're being cued by the daylight, which obviously the amount of that is not changing. But when they get there, the temperature isn't what they need. It isn't what it used to be, right? Isn't what it used to be? Isn't what they evolved uh, to to respond to? And so, yeah, I think if if animals that are using temperature cues are going to do better than those that are using photoperiod cues. Is any work going on right now, you know, to study that? It, again, it sounds like one that uh, the type of thing that would have to take place over the course of many years. Yeah, I think there's been a lot of work done on birds, uh, both because of our inherent fascination with birds and because they're a little bit easier to study than, say, fish species. Uh, and yes, there's there's at least at the ecological level there's work that demonstrates that animals that are using temperature as the primary cue are doing better than animals that are using photoperiod cues. We haven't done this work with fish yet, but I think it's coming down the pipe. Okay. I was hoping we could circle back just a moment on the reproductive steroids. And could you tell us a little bit about what they allow us to know that we would not otherwise be able to find out through traditional means? Uh, the reproductive steroids can be important for just determining whether either individuals or populations or a whole are spawning at a given size or age or time of year. Some of this is just really basic information that we don't have. It's fairly easy to do for animals that we have in captivity, 
but not so easy for animals in the wild. And if we can start to put a picture together about what proportion of animals are becoming mature at a given age and what the season for that reproduction is, is, is really important for us to understand how things like fishing pressure, for instance, are gonna impact ultimate, ultimate sustainability of populations. So those are really key aspects that we can get at by understanding more about the endocrine system. Okay. So, you know, in, in the case of fish, it could be things where, you know, obviously it's it's harder to gather information because they're under the water. We don't always see them. We don't always know when and where they're spawning. Um, but we can get some insight into that uh, by taking, you know, a scale sample or something like that. That's right. Or even in, for instance, in whales, dolphins, there's groups that are now collecting uh, whale blow from drones, and we can actually measure steroids that are present in that in that small amount of liquid that comes out that's actually mixed with some cells. And so there's great hope that we'll be able to use that to assess, say, the reproductive capacity of different populations of cetaceans. Okay, if you could just talk about that for a minute, because that's something that I'm, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned, because it, it caught my eye when I was reading the article. Uh, the use of drones to capture whale blow. How, how is that carried out? You know, I mean, the drones don't have a, a particularly long period of time that they can stay idling in a certain area. How is that working? Are they are they flying above, seeing whales beneath them, and then flying down and capturing the whale blow? How does that work? Well, first of all, this has really just begun. And you've got to get a lot of permitting in place to be able to do this, as you can imagine. But what's been done so far is to have a drone operator that's in a boat that's near the whale, so within, say, 50 yards, And when the whales come to the surface, the drone would be right nearby and then can swoop in, not so close, hopefully, as to disturb the animal, uh, but can wait right over the blowhole and then capture a, a blow sample. And, uh, and so, so what sorts of uh, information can be gleaned from those, uh, those blow samples? Well, we can measure, again, the, the things that are easiest for us to measure are the corticosteroids and the sex steroids. Those hormones are particularly stable uh, and are present in all cells. And so those are really the ones that so far we've been able to measure. And this is true for not just whale blow, but for feces and urine, scales, feathers, all the other tissue that we've been able to work on. Uh, The focus has been on the cortisol and the sex steroids. But we really think in the long term, we'll be able to measure some of the other important hormones as well that will give us even more insight into what's going on in the lives of these animals. And, and what sort of human activities uh, has that approach been used to interrogate? You know, is it, is, is it cross-referencing things like the use of naval sonar, or is it just getting a sort of a baseline amount of information? That's, that's certainly the hope. Uh, at this point, I think we're really in the experimental stages of just understanding what levels of hormone are present in the whale blow and, and how they change over time. I don't think anybody's quite gotten to the stage yet where we could address those issues, but I think those are exactly the issues that folks have in mind. That sounds like something we'll certainly keep an eye out for. Um, what else do you foresee uh, for the future of this area of study? Um, you know, what are some potentially studies that you'd be interested in seeing in the future? Well, I think that this tool, that the set of tools that we've developed for conservation endocrinology have the opportunity to address a large number of environmental issues. So at, we've touched on a few climate change, endocrine disruptors, impacts of human activity, uh, po- other pollution aspects that, that may interact with the endocrine system. But 
those are the ones that uh, most come to mind because again, they're the ones that where we have a role in changing the animal's response to it, to environmental cues and, and to environmental perturbations that we bring about. So the ones that we have the most opportunity to do something about, I think that's where we can make the greatest contributions. I think one of the things that we'll have to do is try to understand the endocrine system in a lot of other species that we don't currently. We've focused a lot of our work over the years on vertebrates, and that's completely understandable. Um, but we don't know a lot about the basics, some of the basics of the control of reproduction or stress in invertebrates. And I think about the highly endangered mussel species that we have here in the eastern U.S. Um, and lots of other species, ocean species, that we really don't know much about their endocrine system. So for some of these, we're going to have to do some very basic research to understand more about their endocrinology. And we'll certainly look forward to that research. Dr. McCormick, thank you very much for joining me today. Oh, James, it's been a pleasure to talk with you today. Thank you. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you and talk to you next time.